Welcome to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. We are a local church in East London, here to be a beacon of hope for Hoxton. And our mission is to worship God, make disciples, share Jesus and transform Hoxton. Thank you, Angela, for bringing that reading for us. May we pray. Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would plant these words of scripture in our hearts like a seed in good soil, that your word would grow in us and bring forth from us good fruit for the sake of Jesus and for your kingdom. We ask this in his name. Amen. So we continue a sermon series looking at the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because it begins with saying that Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down and began to teach them. Uh, So they call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of obvious, really. And in this uh, sermon, it's contained in Matthew's Gospel in chapters 5, 6, and 7. In this teaching, Jesus is, as it were, kind of mirroring, reflecting, reinterpreting the revelation of God's law given through Moses in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story of uh, Moses going up uh, on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and coming back down with God's law to give to the Israelites? Matthew, as a gospel writer, is doing something similar here. He's saying, here is God's revelation of his his will, his character, his heart, his nature, uh, that the great rule or law with a capital R and a capital L that sort of underpins the whole fabric of the universe. And Jesus now, just as Moses did before, Jesus now is coming to reveal this to you, to um, report it to you. And if we will read the Sermon on the Mount and we will reflect on the Sermon on the Mount and we will invite the Holy Spirit to make the Sermon on the Mount powerful and meaningful, Jesus' words powerful and meaningful in our lives, then those words will take root in us and will transform our lives from the inside out. And actually, not only will we be changed as individuals, but the whole fabric of society will be changed. The whole of our culture will be changed if we would only uh, read and learn and obey and, as Jesus says at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, put these words of mine into practice. Don't just hear and let it go away, but put these words into practice. The challenge for us in hearing Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and taking those words, letting them sink into our hearts and then putting them into practice is that in every age of the church there are three great idols, as it were, beneath all the other idols which threaten to divert Christians from faithful worship of the living God. And they are sex, money and power. And indeed, over, I I call them the unholy trinity of sex, money, and power. Uh, Not necessarily that those things in and of themselves are bad, but when they are made gods, when they become idols, when they are expected to give you ultimate meaning and significance and purpose, that's when they become toxic and destructive. Indeed, Western culture in particular, Western Europe, North America, over the past 200 years or so, has tried to turn away from its traditional Christian culture calling into question the teachings of Jesus and saying, well, he didn't really mean that. Or back then in those days, people wrote that, but they didn't really mean it. And these words are different uh, now. And, And in doing so, Western culture has looked for contemporary prophets to try and explain the human condition, to try and interpret for us and explain to us what makes the human heart tick. 
what makes the world go around. Marx, Karl Marx said that the heart of the human problem was to do with money and economics. Freud said it was all about sex. And Nietzsche said it was all about power. And nowadays, perhaps we'd recognize the prominence of sex, money, and power in our everyday lives. We want to assert everyone's freedom to express their sexual individuality and identity. We want to have money that enables us uh, to have material consumption and self-determination. We want money so that we can do what we want and have the things we want. And we want power and freedom to build our own status and significance, not least through the likes, loves and follows on social media. Sex, money and power continue to assert a hold on us to to grab at us. But Jesus shows us a different way to live. He shows us how following him will break the power of these idols in our lives. And as I said at the beginning, if we will uh, hear and put into practice these teachings of Jesus in our lives, it won't just change us. It will make us a new society, a new culture. There'll be new ways of relating to one another in neighborhoods and in nations. And here in the Sermon on the Mount... In this passage that we're looking at today in Matthew 6, Jesus talks specifically about our attitude towards money. And when he speaks about money, Jesus is speaking particularly about how money expresses and directs. That is to say, it both reveals, but it also directs and determines sets of choices that we make about how we live. Whether we will follow the way of the world around us, whether we'll go with the flow of our culture, or whether we will follow Jesus' teaching and life. And I want to briefly have a look at how this works out through these uh, four choices or four oppositions, four binaries, as it were, that uh, Jesus sets out. So he, he talks, first of all, about whether your treasure is in heaven or on earth. Then he talks about light and darkness, Then he goes on to talk about uh, who will be your master, whether it's God or whether it's money. And finally, he says, will we live according to God's kingdom or material concerns? You see, there are these four oppositions and binaries to set up. Treasure in heaven or on earth. Light or darkness. God or money. God's kingdom or material concerns. And of course, Jesus is inviting us to choose the former, in each one of those pairs. So the first few verses in the reading. And you might want to, uh, I know that we've not handed out Bibles, but you might want to open your Bible on your phone just so you can follow this and uh, look at it. Maybe if you're at home, you might have your uh, own Bible with you. It's Matthew 6, beginning at verse 19, is the passage that we're reading. And Jesus... Uh, begins by talking about storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven rather than treasures on earth. And the emphasis on here, uh, the emphasis here is on the problem with storing treasures on earth. And what's the problem that Jesus identifies? He says that they're perishable and they are vulnerable. He says they're perishable and vulnerable. I'm, gonna t- I'm trying to tell you exactly what he says, but for some reason my Bible app is not bringing up the verses. So this is uh, where paper is a good thing, isn't it? But most of you are reading on your phones if you're reading at all. Here we go. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So he says that treasures that you store up for yourself on earth are perishable and vulnerable. And in Jesus' context, some of the treasures that might provide economic wealth and status would have included cloths. Remember uh, Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth um, in the book of Acts? Uh, or grain. Remember the... Um, the farmer who wanted to build bigger barns to store up his grain because he had a good harvest. Or people might have implements made from precious metals. Oil lamps. Remember the foolish virgins who didn't keep their wicks and their oil lamps topped up with oil so their lamp went out. That's some of the kind of treasure that might have provided economic status. And cloth and grain can be destroyed by moth and by vermin. If you store up cloth in a store, um, but moths get in there, they can eat it. If you store up grain for yourself, uh, rodents can get in and eat it. And of course, other objects that you might have of value can be stolen from you. People can break in and steal. So he says all of these things that you might store up as treasure on earth are perishable and vulnerable. They don't necessarily last. But by contrast, treasure in heaven is not perishable, is not vulnerable. It is eternal. So does this mean that we can't have or shouldn't have earthly possessions or treasures? Well, no. We need to provide for our families and to share with one another. And elsewhere in Jesus' teaching and the wider New Testament, it's clear that we should be sharing our possessions with others according to their needs. And indeed in Proverbs 6, uh, the ant is commended for storing up during summer what it needs for itself in winter. And uh, the book of Timothy makes clear that a Christian who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. It's 1 Timothy 5.8. The issue is storing up for yourselves treasures, accumulating more than you need for yourself not for sharing or giving. And this choice that Jesus sets up, this first of these binaries, these oppositions, these choices, Jesus says, uh, ends with a challenge. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if we want to find out what we really love, what we really treasure, if you want to know that about yourself, then we can look at our bank statements and we can reflect on how we use our money. We can look at our homes and see whether we've fallen into always acquiring more material treasures in terms of valuable possessions. We can ask how we would feel if we lost one of these. We can look at ourselves and say, am I willing to lend and share my possessions with others even if it gets damaged or doesn't get returned? It's a good way of finding out what you really treasure in life. So the first opposition is treasure in heaven or treasure on earth. And Jesus says, choose treasure in heaven, store up treasure in heaven. The next set of choices that Jesus offers is about light and about darkness. And this section seems to be a bit strange in the context of this passage because we've got this section about treasure in heaven and treasure on earth and he's going to go on to say um, you can't serve both God and money. So what's this stuff about eyes, lamps, light and darkness? What does it have to do with money? Well, there's a couple of ideas that scholars have offered over the years. One idea is that the eyes of our bodies are a little like car headlights or a spotlight. They reveal the direction in which we are traveling. And if they're faulty, we cannot see the way ahead and we stumble in darkness instead. Another insight, another idea from scholarship has to do with the word that is translated healthy in this passage. It says there, verse 20, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. This word can also be translated as open or generous. It's like being open-handed. And conversely, the Greek word that is translated unhealthy 
can imply stingy. So in other words, the I will tell you whether you are generous or stingy. What are you seeing? How do you value things? Do you value things with a, a, with a mindset and a worldview of generosity or of stinginess? So this passage about eyes and lamps and light and darkness is about money. But why is this idea of blindness linked to money? Well, money does have power to blind us to its power. In that sense, money as an idol, when I talk about that that great unholy trinity of sex, money and power, of all the sins and all the idols that beset us, money is the one that can trick us into thinking it's not a problem for us. It can blind us to its power. Because most sin, most of the things we do which we know are against God's teaching and against Jesus' way of life and against the, the, the way, the culture of God's kingdom, most sins, you know when you're doing it. You know when you're lying. You know when you're lusting. You know when you're blowing up and getting angry with somebody. There's a bunch of the sins we know that we're doing it. You know, like if it's adultery, it's not like, oh, you're not my wife. You know, you know, yeah? You know. But you don't know if you're greedy, actually. That's the thing about money. It has power to blind us. Because money wants to tell you that you're normal. And it always makes you compare yourself with those who appear to have more, making you, by comparison, appear more humble. Well, I have, I've got a very simple lifestyle because I'm not like them over there. One of the ways that money controls our everyday lives is by blinding us to its influence. It has these subtle ways to make you believe that you just need this new subscription, this extra thing, this kind of holiday or experience to keep up with others. I'm not being flashy or affluent. I'm not greedy. I'm not, in, I'm not into material stuff. I'm just, you know, I'm just normal. I just want to keep up with everyone else. It affects our lifestyle choices, and you're blind to it. Because we live in a culture where every product that you choose, you've got a choice, haven't you? You go to the shop, and there's like a more expensive version, a better version, and a, a, a less high-quality version, a worse version. And you know what you can afford, and you choose what you can afford accordingly. But then maybe you come into a bit more money, you get a raise at work, or you've managed to pay down your credit card, and there's a little more cash in the bank this month. And now when you make the choice, you say, well, I'll get the better one, I'll get the more expensive one. And so life becomes a series of continual upgrades and promotions, and sort of increasing. And actually, lots of people then in our society end up living their lives kind of maxed out and always right at the limit and the threshold, with no margin, no spare. We're caught in this upward cycle of choices and we don't even realise that it's happening to us. You know, oh, I've got my basic Netflix subscription, five ninety nine a month, six ninety nine a month, whatever, but actually it'd be helpful for my family to have it. I'll just get the next one up. I'll pay next day, de- yeah, I can afford next day delivery, I'll get next day delivery. So we get caught into these on, on, ongoing upgrades into more material consumption, spending more money. So the point is that Actually, we can be blind to the power of money in our lives in small, subtle ways. And so this thing about eyes, lamps, light and darkness darkness is all about money and its power in our lives. And Jesus is saying is that if we're generous with our money, our whole body will be healthy. Actually, we might say as a church, if we're generous with our money as a church, then the whole of our church will be healthy. But if we're stingy, then our body will wither and stumble and perish in darkness. So this passage 
about eyes and lamps and light and darkness nestled between treasure in heaven or on earth or you know, serving God or money as one of the two masters is still about money and its power. And generosity, which is what this section is encouraging us to, generosity is in the nature of God. God is generous. It's just who he is. And if we're becoming more like Jesus following him, then we will also become more generous. That's one of the things we will find. Maybe you know people in your own lives who are, you know, mature Christians, elderly, maybe a grandparent, something, who's just, you know, as they've become deeper and deeper in faith, and you see them, and they are so holy, and they're so impressive, and they're so lovely and warm, and actually generosity is almost always a characteristic of those who are growing in their faith and becoming more like Jesus. And if we're not becoming more generous, and less caught up in this cycle of uh, spending more money, upgrading then we're probably not becoming more like Jesus. So it's a great question to go and ask yourself. How generous are you with your money? How much do you care about the money you have? How caught up are you in this cycle? So treasure in heaven or treasure on earth? Walking in light with healthy, generous, open eyes or stumbling in darkness? Serving God or serving money? Here Jesus sets up a binary opposition and draws upon the idea of being like a slave or a servant to a master. And he says that money will act as a master in your life and that it sets itself up as a master that opposes God. Now, I don't think Jesus is trying to make a persuasive argument here. I don't think Jesus is saying, yeah, well, for me, like it's God or money, but for you, if you can do both, that's fine. I don't think he's a relativist. I don't think he's caught up in kind of religious pluralism or you know, cultural relativism here. I think he's revealing a profound reality about the nature of the world. And we will have to choose, do we accept what Jesus reveals and teaches? Or do we say, no, Jesus, I disagree. I know better, thanks. Like, we have to choose, is this spiritual reality, this material reality that he's revealing, something we will accept and receive and align ourselves with? Or are we going to, like, stand in judgment and say, no, you got that one wrong. He simply says, you cannot serve both. His language is strong. It's set up in these binary oppositions. Love and hate, devoted to one, despise the other. And his language is powerful because it has to make the point. This really matters. Again, I mentioned to you that if you want to, if you want to do a bit of self-evaluation, reflect on yourself... There are lots of things you can do. You, you can look at how you use your, your calendar to find out your, the priorities of your time. You can look at your bank statements to find out the priorities of how you spend your money. One way to test how much mastery money has in your life is to run what I call my Christian or pagan test. Christian or pagan. In the Roman Empire, in which Jesus lived and spoke and taught, died and rose again, culture was... It was a 24-7 culture. Actually, it was not so far removed from our culture now. It was a plural, relativistic, multi-religious culture. It was a 24-7 culture dominated by work and recreation. 
People worked, they were involved in often little kind of household industries and households were extended. Uh, so the first churches were house churches and they weren't just like 2.4 children, nuclear biological family. They were extended families of servants and slaves and aunties and uncles and somebody's friend from uh, another district who would come to work and make a way and apprentices that you'd taken on to build up in your trade. Um, people worked. They, they would buy and sell, they would trade goods, and in the cities they would gather in the produce that was brought in from agriculture, the harvest, and they would sell it on, and they would do all of that kind of stuff. And then when they weren't working, they were engaged in recreation, entertainment, and the Romans loved entertainment. Oh my goodness, they bought these, built these huge colosseums for games and spectacles. You could watch people killing each other, it was great. You could watch people getting dismembered and cut to pieces and hacked or like being mauled by lions. What could be better? It's like Game of Thrones in real life. And that's what people did and that's what people spent their money on. They went there like we'd go to the cinema and buy popcorn. They'd go to the, they'd go to the games and they'd spend their money on buying stuff. Booze, drink, prostitutes, whatever it was, whatever gave you a good time. So life in the Roman Empire was all about work 24-7, make a trade, make a living, make your way, accumulate enough money, wealth, power, status, significance to be able, when you did have a bit of free time, to go and participate in the games, the entertainments, the spectacles. Does it sound at all familiar? I think we live in a world which says, work 24-7, work all the hours under the sun, get a promotion, get on, get ahead, get some more money, and when you've got more money, you can buy a better subscription. You can go to this concert, that concert. Have you tried buying concert tickets recently? They cost a fortune. And when you go there, how much does it cost to buy a beer or a burger? It's extraordinarily expensive. So you need to be getting, you you know, you you have to work harder. You have to make more money if you're going to join in with this thing. And if you don't join in with the entertainment, oh man, where have you been? If you've not seen that box set, if you've not followed that series, if you've not had that experience, you're a loser. So how much do you spend on your media subscriptions? I did this as an experiment a couple of years ago. It's kind of interesting. TV license, Sky TV subscription, internet, uh, Apple Music, maybe Spotify for some of you. Um, you know, what would it be? Now TV, Netflix, Amazon Prime. £30 a month? £50 a month? £100 a month? Have you ever done it? It's a fascinating experiment. How much do you spend on joining in with entertainment, with the spectacles? I I did it just as a test case on our own family. And then I did it and thought, if we had like a Sky Sports subscription, there's another 50 quid a month or whatever it is. Hey, if you can afford it, you're entitled to it, right? Well, that's what the culture says to us. But Jesus says to us, are you really caught up in this continued... That's again money blinding you to its power in your life. So Christian or pagan, well, provocatively, I want to claim that if you spend more on your entertainment packages than you give for God's mission, then perhaps you're more pagan than Christian. And that's okay, because we can repent, we can change. God gives us a way out. But it's a good good challenge, isn't it? And if you want to remedy that, learn to give generously to the work of God's kingdom. You know, to the local church, St. John's, yes, but also to the other mission projects that are working for the sake of justice and for God's kingdom in the world. Compassion, Tear Fund, Ivy Street, more locally, Food Bank, Home for Good, other Christian mission organizations. Invest the money in the things which advance 
the work of God's kingdom, not just your own leisure and recreation. And listen, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to have a Netflix subscription or to pay your TV license. We do, of course we do. You just got to get it in proportion. You got to get it in balance. You got to figure out what's really important, what really matters. Should we be supporting our local church financially? Yes, we should. Scriptures tell us we should. One of the first things I did when I came here as vicar of St. John's almost 11 years ago was set up a standing order so that I could give my bit to support it. Why? Because then we can do kids' work and youth work and community organising and pastoral care and run CAP and gather together for services and do the sort of work and the, just those basic compassionate things of caring for people in our neighbourhood, preserving the space, making this a place of hospitality. Should we be giving to the local church? Yes, of course, because it will enable us uh, to do the things we need to do. And, you know, praise God, many people in our congregation, in our worshipping family, give really generously and sacrificially to the work of mission here. There's about 67 adults in our church that are currently engaged with regular financial giving. That means they give every week or every month um, through the bank and standing order. But that probably leaves around another 100, 120 or so who are not yet engaged in that. And if you're not sure whether you can give, if, you, if it feels terrifying, just take the leap of faith and start. Don't worry about the amount. It's not the amount that you give that God values, it's how much it costs you. If it's a sacrificial leap of faith to give that first five pounds and it's cost you something, God values that. If you've been giving five pounds a month for 30 years and it doesn't cost you anything, well, maybe it's time to go back and think again, revise it. So, where are we in, the, in these oppositions, these choices? Uh, treasure in heaven or treasure on earth? Living in light, being generous and open-handed, or living in darkness, being stingy and ungenerous. Serving God or serving money, and money will always seek its mastery over you um, through work and through recreation. And then choosing God's kingdom or following our material concerns. The final set of choices occurs in a longer section. I won't spend so much time on this, and it's, but it's still all about money. But now it's not just about what money can buy you. It does, it's now not just about the significance or the hopes you might have for your money. It's now Jesus is talking about the things that people fear around money. He's talking about your fear and your anxiety. It's now couched in relation to comfort and security that we think money can give us. So Jesus speaks about the material concerns that we all have. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? How am I going to make sure I've paid my bills? But he invites us to resolve our concerns by trusting God. And he begins by speaking about the natural world, birds and flowers. See that there in, um, where are we? Ah, it's gone again. Yeah, you know, look at the birds here. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. That's back to the grain. Remember the grain that you could store in your barn, but the vermin might destroy it. And yet God feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than the birds? Look at the flowers. They don't labor or spin. If God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you? So he acknowledges that all of us have material needs, food, water, shelter, clothing. And that God knows that we need these things. But he's making a logical conclusion. He says, if God cares for and provides for the birds and the flowers, the stuff of creation, which is good, 
but it's not his human creation, well then how much more will God care for his human creation who are made in his image? He will give us what we need. So the invitation is not to be worried about all of these things, but instead to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness and then trust that God will give you all these other things you need. And as one old lady who I knew in a former church always used to say, God promises to give us what we need, not what we want. Yeah, we're dealing with our needs. God knows what we need. He'll provide us. So Jesus gives us these four sets of choices. Will you store up treasure in heaven or treasure on earth? Will you walk in light or in darkness? Will you let God be your master or will you let money be your master? And will you pursue God's kingdom or will you pursue your own material concerns? And you know what I think Jesus is doing? He's asking us to question, what's our ambition? What's really driving us? What do we really want? What do we really trust in in life? So we could think about the question of our ambitious and what's driving us. Larry Crabb was a Christian psychologist who had a compelling theory that all human concerns and desires are rooted in their fundamental need for significance and security. He said, most of what we yearn for and strive for in our lives is to know that we matter, that we are significant to a spouse or a family, to our workplace or organization, to our followers and wider society. He says, you you all want to know that you matter, that you're significant. And much of what causes us anxiety in life is the fear that even if we do achieve some significance, we might lose it. I might get promoted to this position in my organization. I might achieve this in my professional working life. I might get married and have a family. I might get the money that allows me to buy the sorts of material comforts and luxuries I want. But what if I lose it all? He says, we're so anxious because we might lose it. And Larry Crabb claims that only in receiving and accepting the gospel of Christ can we discover that our ultimate significance and security is given us by God. You are a beloved child of God. You are a daughter, a son, whom God loves, with whom he is well pleased. Your status doesn't depend, your significance doesn't depend on your achievements. It just just depends on receiving what God says about you, who you are. Can you lose it? No. God says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I mention this because money is a great example for how our yearning for significance and security plays out in our lives. We use money to demonstrate our significance. You know, we get a better job, we buy a better phone, we have a more expensive holiday. And all of these things show our significance and our status. And of course, it's possible to actively shun these material comforts, but to still do so in a way that shows ourselves as special or virtuous. And then we're still building our significance in the eyes of the world by our attitude to money. So you might be the kind of person who says, oh, I don't go in for any of that stuff. I just live a simple life. Um, but if you, if you do that because you're expecting praise and significance and your status to come from it, it's still money that's at the root of it. And we use money to gain control, to, con- to try and assert control over an uncontrollable, uncontrollable world. If I have my pension fund, if I have savings in the bank, if I own my own house and then I'm not subject to fluctuations in rent or anything. We want enough money not to worry and to feel secure. 
Uh, I want to come in to land and wrap up, but I wanted to share with you um, a slightly embarrassing story about myself, but one that I look back to um, with great fondness and appreciation because it was a moment where God changed me and helped me to make better choices. I was around um, 22, 23 years old, and uh, I had I started out in, um, I'd fallen into a job running a little independent art cinema, uh, which was part of a, a newly sort of created media company. And I was working in Hampstead uh, in North London. And Hampstead, if you don't know, it's quite a posh and affluent area. It's very, it was very trendy back then. This is going back 20 years. And, uh, and this cinema was kind of glamorous and cool. And the media company was connected to... Um, various new production companies coming off the Brit art movement and we had all these kind of British acting stars and celebrities who were coming. And my job was going quite well. I was doing quite well. I was sort of gaining a bit of significance and a bit of status. I had a bit of money in the bank. I bought a nice car. I had a girlfriend. I felt like all the things that you're supposed to have in your early 20s are coming together. You know, good car, money in the bank, good job my photograph in Heat magazine next to Ewan McGregor, partying with people, you know, celebrities and the like. It was all the kind of stuff that, you know, it, this is pre-Instagram, right? But if I'd been on Instagram, I'd have had followers. Um, you know, I felt like it was all going well. And so here's the embarrassing bit. I remember standing in my flat at age 22, 23, and uh, brushing my teeth. No, no, you do this. You brush your teeth and you, you spend a couple of minutes brushing your teeth and you're looking in the mirror. You, you probably never do this. This is probably just me and maybe John. And you look at yourself and you think, yeah, you're doing all right. You're looking okay. You know, hair's looking good. And I'm thinking to myself and I've got, you know, life's going well at the moment. Got a good, I'm still brushing. Got a good car. Got some money in the bank. Girlfriend. Got a good job. I'm hanging out with celebrities. Everything's going the way it should, really. And then, like a sucker punch to the stomach, as I was looking at myself, admiring myself, appreciating my significance and my status, I felt God say to me, but that's not what I called you to. That's not what I created you for. And I knew that deep within. It wasn't, it wasn't my vocation to earn money, get status, do all that stuff. That wasn't what I'd been called to. I'd been called to serve in the church, to be a minister of the gospel, and I'd been shunning it because I'd been distracted by all of those things that money wanted to say to me. And I'd been blinded to its power by those little accumulations. I traded in the old car for a better car. I was, you know, you know, I had a choice about where to shop for my clothes. And, you know, I could go from the less expensive shop to the more expensive shop. And that was a turning point in my life when I remembered what I was called for and who I was made to be. And not very long after, I resigned from my job. Um, change the relationship, change my priorities. Money has an extraordinary power as an idol in our lives. And I want to help you, me, our whole church family, all of you watching online, experience uh, freedom to be liberated from the power of its grip in your lives. Now, one way that we want to help us, one another as a church, is uh, with the support we're offering through the CAP money course in the CAP Centre. And, and Bassetti, would you just wave at the back? If, you just, if you're in the building, you can turn around and wave. In fact, Bassetti, why don't you just come and join me very quickly um, at the stage. Um, Bassetti is our CAP Centre manager and runs the programme uh, of CAP 
CAP, Christians Against Poverty, is dedicated to helping people escape um, from the kind of crippling poverty that affects them and and particularly to address issues around um, debt, household finance, budgeting, all of those kind of things. So if you are, we want to be honest and real about money. If you're struggling with debt and you can't talk about it because you feel embarrassed and ashamed, come and see Bersede. Sign up for the next CAP money course. Get involved with the CAP Centre and we want to help one another. Thank you so much, Bersede. And please, yeah, Clapper, and please pray for Bersede and the team around here are working on that. So if what you're hearing today is, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to start giving, but I'm terrified because I'm in debt. I'm terrified because I'm so anxious and worried about money. Please, we want to help. We want to support. We want to help us learn and grow together. And that's why we are running the CAP Money course and the CAP Centre. But also, I want to encourage you to learn to give generously. Yes, to the local church, but also to one another and to God's mission in the world. So just be bold. The link is going up if you're watching online. Uh, if you're here in the building, it, uh, the link for our local church giving is sgh.org.uk forward slash giving. And, and that will take you to a page. And not only will that show you how you can start giving financially to the mission of God's uh, church here in Hoxton, but also some more teachings and more articles to help you think about money and generosity in your lives. Uh, let me conclude with this. There's a reality about the world. We will spend ourselves tirelessly on the things which matter most to us. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there is your heart. We will give ourselves our love, our affection, our energy to the things that we value most. And we'll make extraordinary sacrifice for them. We'll make sacrifices in our, you know, to pursue our careers. We'll make sacrifices for our families, sacrifices for our ambition. And if these idols of sex, money, and power get a hold of us, they'll make us sacrifice everything for their sake. But they'll never give us the significance or the security that we crave. They cannot save us. We'll spend ourselves tirelessly on the things that we treasure. What did Jesus treasure? What did Jesus give himself for? Upon what or upon whom did Jesus spend himself tirelessly for the sake of his treasure? Well, he saw treasure in each one of us, in you and in me. So great that he came from heaven to live among us, to die for our sins, to reconcile us to God, to forgive us and to welcome us into new life. God valued us so highly that he paid the ultimate price. He sacrificed everything for the treasure he saw in you. And when we grasp that reality that we are God's treasure, then everything changes. All our concerns for status and significance, security, money, power, wealth, sex, influence, followers, likes, loves, material comforts, our perspective on all of these things changes because we are God's treasure. And Jesus came And sacrificed everything for that treasure. When we grasp that, our lives will change and we will want to turn and be received by God. And receive our status as his treasure. As a gift. Would you like to stand as we pray? I want to just invite you uh, to take a moment to... Reflect on what you've heard and to repent and reorient your lives. If you have been governed and mastered 
and ruled by money. Desire for it, worry about lack of it, control over it. Now is the time to lay that worry down, to lay that burden down, to repent of the ways in which you have sacrificed for and followed that idol. I'm going to lead us in a prayer and you might want to echo these words in your heart as we repent and turn back to God. Father God, I am sorry for the ways in which I have let money rule my life. The ways I have been driven to earn more money, to buy more stuff, to seem more significant in the eyes of the world. I am sorry for the fear that it has generated in me and the ways in which I have become anxious and tried to control money, not realizing all the while it was controlling me. I'm sorry. And Father, when I've made bad choices, when I've chosen treasure on earth, darkness, money, material comfort, Lord, now I repent. And I take hold of the things that you have offered me, treasure in heaven, light. God in Jesus and your kingdom and your righteousness. Thank you, God, that you treasured me so greatly that you came to rescue me, to save me in Jesus. Help me to follow him. Let these words take root in my heart and bear fruit in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. New talks will be uploaded every week from all of our services. And do check out our website, stjohnshoxton.org.uk, for more information.